You just missed a home run. I missed out on an incredible deal you were offering at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It just started. You can get beautiful Pella Windows and pay no interest for four years. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Wow. Now, I acknowledge that, that yesterday on the program... I was talking about the Mega Millions jackpot. Your chances of winning the Mega Millions jackpot is 1 in 302 million. Let me put this in perspective. Your chances of getting bitten by a shark are 300 times greater than your chances of winning the Mega Millions lottery. So it's, it's, I mean, I, I tell you something, and, th- and that includes people who don't even go in the water. But I, again, I, if you, if you want to quote unquote invest your money in the Mega Millions ticket, that, that's okay. You just have to understand it's a really, really bad bet. I have found something though that is an even worse bet than spending money on the Mega Millions jackpot for tonight. And that is, if you were a contributor to either the Alex Lazary or the Sarah Godlewski campaigns for Senate, that's about as bad a bet as you can get. So the, the developments today is <clears throat> what we thought was going to be an interesting four-way primary race coming up in about 10 days. Well, now it's all over but the shouting because in the la- waning days of the campaign, everybody except Mandela Barnes has, has bailed. Alex Lazary who has spent the eight, last 18 months of his life running for Senate and has invested, uh, I say invested in that, just like if you're buying the lottery tickets, you're making an investment, who has spent, what, 10, 11, 12 million dollars of family money. Um, he, he bailed, figuring that he, he couldn't win the race. Um, after he left, Sarah Godlewski, the state treasurer, who has a bunch of family money, her husband was, uh, is, is a, um, like a portfolio manager. Um, she, after spending over four million dollars of her own money in the race and saying, Hey, I'm in it, this, 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 I'm in it to win it. She is now backed out as well, essentially clearing the decks. Um, here, here's the, the staggering thing though. It's not that Godlewski put four million dollars of her own money into the race. It is that of that money, apparently, last week, she put almost half a million dollars in. The reports show that last Tuesday, she put $275,000 of her own money in the race, and then on Friday, put another $200,000 in. So last week alone, she gave her campaign $475,000. I mean... Man, can you imagine you're sitting there looking at it thinking, okay, in the last couple days, that's how much money I've ended up spending, almost half a million dollars. I am told one of the things that was happening is she decided towards the end, in an effort to break through, that she was going to make her campaign about abortion. Uh, you know, and it's just, I, I'm the candidate who's going to fight to make sure that, you know, anybody who wants an abortion can get one at any time, etc. And they were out testing that message. And it, it just it did not resonate. And, and that's that is not surprising. That's what other polling is finding. And I, I've said this before. I understand that people have strong feelings on on the issue one way or or the other. But the, the people that have strong feelings on either side of the issue, they tend to cancel each other out. And abortion rights is not the driving force 
for the overriding number of voters. You you might be pro-choice, you might be pro-life, but it's not necessarily the be-all, end-all that's going to cause you to vote for somebody. And that's why for people who think that the abortion decision is going to move the needle in November, I, I really don't think so. I think that there's people who feel strongly about it, for example, on the right who are going to go out and vote for Republican candidates, and there's people who feel strongly about it on the left who are going to go out and vote for Democratic candidates. But I don't think there's too many people who otherwise who would not otherwise vote for a candidate on one side who are going to be voting motivated by abortion. So anyhow, Sarah Godlewski was apparently trying to see if the abortion issue would resonate and sweep her into office, and the numbers came back and demonstrated pretty clearly that they weren't. So after spending another half a million dollars of family money, just decided there was no way to win, and so she has bailed. If you have already voted... Well, there are ways that you can go ahead and and spoil your ballot. That's what they call it. I'm not going to go into the details about that. But um, this is it is one of the problems that comes with early voting. I am a big proponent of of early voting. I I did it myself. Like I say, we're going on our uh, uh, listener trip to Alaska. We leave on Tuesday. So I'm not coming back till the day after the primary. So I want to make sure I voted. And I I, I went out and I, I cast my ballot. My wife cast her ballot as well. But, yeah, it it would be frustrating if you were one of the people who voted in the Democrat primary who, you know, had been told, hey, let's get these votes in early and stuff like that. Your your vote has essentially become meaningless unless you go and jump through the hoops to spoil your ballot and spoil your ballot and vote for somebody else. It is the danger that comes with early voting because. I mean, the the names are going to stay on the ballot, but all the other candidates have dropped out. So essentially, if you have already voted in the Democrat Senate primary and you voted for somebody other than Mandela Barnes, your vote is pretty much meaningless. And that's the downside to early voting. When we come back, I want to talk about the city of Milwaukee and what they're proposing to do with a restaurant in a crime-plagued area of town. We'll discuss in just a moment. Stick around. More Jeff One of our texters makes the point that early voting is like drafting your fantasy football team before the preseason is over. Well, there is an element to that. And and one of our other texters says, well, two of the people I was going to vote for, Kevin Nicholson and Alex Lazary, they've now both dropped out. And, And yes, they've both dropped out. I do just want to make a point for people who have not voted yet, just so you don't make an error. In Wisconsin, it is what is known as an open primary. In other words, you do not have to, in some states, you've got to register as a Republican and then only registered Republicans can vote in the Republican primary or register as a Democrat, then only registered Democrats get to vote in the Democratic primary. That's not how it works in Wisconsin. You do not have to declare your party affiliation. But, 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 even though the primary races are all going to be on the same ballot, what you need to understand is you can only vote in one primary so if you want to vote for um, in the Republican gubernatorial primary, okay, you can't then in turn vote. Not, not much reason to vote now in the Democratic Senate primary. But, okay, there's, there's Democrat candidates who are running for lieutenant governor. <clears throat> so let's say you wanted to vote there. You can't go back and forth. So if you're going to vote in uh, the 
the Republican gubernatorial primary, you can only vote in Republican primaries. And similarly, you know, you can only vote in the Democratic primaries. You cannot go back and forth. At the general election, you can, of course, do that. You can vote for Ron Johnson for Senate and then Tony uh, Tony Evers for governor. Not sure why you do that, but you could if you wanted. But in the primary you know, your, your ballot, it isn't going to work if you try to flip-flop back and forth. You cannot do it. All right. I, am, I admit I am intrigued by this story because it raises the question to me of, of who is at fault. We hear a lot of conversation about trying to get businesses to invest in urban areas, But the problem with that is when you invest in an urban area, particularly nowadays, you you have to face a lot of of problems that you wouldn't have to face if you invested in, okay, say like a non-urban area. Look, I understand crime is all over, but the the truth of the matter is some areas are more crime-plagued and more crime-ridden than others. That is just the, the reality of it. If you look at the crime statistics, for example, from Milwaukee, you're going to see that while you have crime all over, let's take Milwaukee County, if you're looking at homicides and car thefts and things of the like, they tend to be concentrated in certain zip codes. That is just the reality that's there. So if you are a business person trying to saying, okay, well, where where am I going to invest my money? I want to start, you know, Jeff's um, widget store. There's all sorts of considerations that you have, in, including the, the whole issue of where can I do this and where can it be safe? So here, here is the story. There is a Culver's restaurant that's located on 55th of uh, 5500 West Fond du Lac Avenue. That, that is one of the more crime-plagued areas of of the city. I'm not saying it's the most crime-plagued area, but it's an area that has challenges, all right? There's a Culver's restaurant that has been there, oh, going on 20 years. And the Culver's restaurant, its license is up for renewal. And there's at least a couple members of the Common Council who apparently want to shut down the Culver's restaurant, not renew its license. And the reason is because... They feel that this Culver's restaurant may, in fact, be a nuisance in the area. Now, sometimes you hear that this nuisance thing when it when it comes to bars or strip joints, and the neighbors complain and they say, "Oh, we've got you know we we've we've, we've got all these fights that are in the parking lot, and there's a shooting in the bar, and it's attracting all the, these issues." But this isn't a strip joint, and and it's not it's not a bar. It's a Culver's restaurant. So apparently the the basis for looking to shut this down is that there have, I think in the last year or so, there have been five police calls where the police have had to respond. There is a high school that's near the area. And what the owner says is, look, here's the deal. Of these five incidents that, that required a police response, two involved groups of teenagers who had come over to the restaurant and were hanging out in, in the parking lot, etc., and who were creating problems. Another incident involved an armed robbery. The Culver's was robbed, and so you know the, the cops had to come and respond. And another one inclu- involved a female employee accusing a male manager of sexual assault, inappropriate touching during 
work. But the the bottom line of this, and I, I don't think that that one went anywhere, but the, the underlying problem is it, it's not, seems to me it's not the restaurant. It's the fact that you have people in the area surrounding the restaurant who are creating problems. Bunches of kids, for example, coming to the restaurant or hanging out in the parking lot and causing trouble. Um, an armed robbery, which last time I checked, you know, it's not your fault. If somebody walks in and sticks up the place, the Culver's has an armed security guard. So they've got security presence, but sometimes because apparently the area they're in or the neighborhood they're in, that that's not enough. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and you know Text line the the owner of the culver says look you know we're we're working on maintaining a a safe environment and and we're doing all that <clears throat> that we possibly can the owner says look community members appreciate the restaurant um in in our particular area there's like not a lot of fast food restaurants and stuff that are around i'm i'm trying to keep my place open i'm trying to provide a service for the community and if anything I, I'm swimming upstream because I, I'm living in this area, and the, the patrons. I, I've got high schools. I had high school kids that cause problems. I'm the victim of an armed robbery. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Rather than trying to close down a place like this, it seems to me that the city should be doing everything it can to support a business like this and try to keep it open. It's not the owner's fault that you've got a bunch of kids that are coming and, you know, creating problems in in the parking lots. There's only so much you can do. It's not the owner's fault that the business is the victim of an armed robbery. This isn't a strip joint, again, where you're saying, okay, there's drug dealing going on in the building, or there's, um, you know, three o'clock in the morning, there's fights going on, or there's underage drinking. It's a restaurant that is trying to stay open. 855-616-1620, we discuss. A couple people are saying, what's this restaurant? It's a Culver's. It's it's in it's a, what they call like Midtown. It's 5501 West Fond du Lac Avenue. It's actually relatively close to that Burger King that we've been talking about in the news today where you had that, that inside job sh- uh, robbery that was staged and the shooting and all. But I guess my, my point is it doesn't strike me as it's bad business. If, if you've got a high school nearby and you've got high school kids that are causing problems and there's a police response, well, well maybe – the problem isn't with the business. The problem is with, I don't know, dealing with the, the crime or dealing with the out-of-control kids or whatever. But it doesn't seem to me it's fair to close the business because of this. John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, I don't want to see that. I live three blocks from there. I do not want to see them close up uh, that restaurant. I mean, the, the mayor and the police, they have to do something. We don't want to close everything up before you notice another restaurant closed, like you say, the Burger King down there. And then you're going to have another um, uh, uh, North Ridge. We don't want that. You know, it's not that bad over there. I live three blocks from there. Right. You know, I mean, they got to do something to keep that restaurant open. Well, it's also, John, it doesn't seem to me like if you live close there, it doesn't seem to me like there's evidence that says that the restaurant is a bad place. It's not like the owners selling drugs out of the restaurant and stuff that they were they were held up once. Well, that's right. not their fault. You've got that high school and you've got kids that come in the parking lot and cause problems. That's not the restaurant's fault. I mean, why why close down the right. restaurant? That's- yeah, go ahead. Get some more security down there. 
get some more security down there. And the mayor, you know, get involved with this. You know, uh, stop closing our places up so we have to drive, you know, uh, 10 miles to go to a Cobra's restaurant. <laughs> yeah. You know, we want our own restaurant there. Well, Leave e- that restaurant alone. Exactly. No, th- thanks for call, John. Exactly. And see, that's the concern. We we hear these phrases about food deserts or things like that, and, and that's what happens when you have businesses that close. If this, was, if this was a problem restaurant, if this was a strip joint that was selling dope constantly and things like that, or there was prostitution going on, I, 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 I understand why you would do that. This is a restaurant restaurant in a, a neighborhood that's apparently got some problems that are endemic to the neighborhood. Why why in the world would you take it out on the restaurant? Doesn't make any sense. Julie in Kenosha. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, my thought on this is I remember when I was in high school, uh, right next to my high school was a Rocky's Pizza. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the high school students, they, they would patronize the restaurants and once in a while there was a a couple of you know not so desirable activities but it's almost like you need something for the kids to do and this restaurant has an armed security guard what else can you ask them to do why would you shut them down well, Julie, thanks for calling. That's, I guess that, that's, that's my point. Uh, it's especially in an area, as our first caller John was talking about, where th- there's not a lot of choices. They shut down the Burger King restaurant. I mean, that license wasn't renewed. So, all right, I, I suspect that maybe that's even drawing more people that are now, you know, like heading to, to the Culver's. If, if it's a badly run business, if there's illegal activity going on there, that's fine. But the truth is, if, if you're running a business, especially a business that's like, like a restaurant, fast food restaurant in particular, where you're going to have a lot of traffic in and out, you've got to understand if you're doing that in a high crime, in a, in a crime area, an area of higher crime, that, that's, that, that's going to present problems. So rather than trying to shut this place down, maybe the question should be, okay, why don't we have more police patrols that are out there? Let's let's step up the, the law enforcement activity. So if we see a large group of kids that are congregating in the parking lot or whatever, law enforcement swoops in and, and moves them along. That, to me, is what the city should do to try to keep its businesses open instead of trying to consider closing down a place. The final hearing on this is going to come in September. That is, of course, Brewer and Shipley, One Hit Wonders, one toke over the line. Okay, and actually, here's the little trivia thing. And my producer Charlie, who picked that, doesn't doesn't know this. All right, I I was not. I've told this story before. I was not at the ice bowl in 1967. I was at Summerfest the night that George Carlin got arrested for the seven words you can't say on TV and in Milwaukee. The the lineup, and I'm not proud that I remember this. This is just how my mind works. Okay, the lineup that night. Um, the the headliners were Arlo Guthrie from Alice's Restaurant fame and Pete Seeger. And there was George Carlin, and there was the Siegel Schwal Blues Band, and there was Brewer and Shipley. 
So Brewer and Shipley were performing that same night as one of the opening acts to uh, the, the night that, that George Carlin ended up getting arrested. With and they, I remember them performing one toke over the line. All right, that brings us uh, before we before we talk about marijuana. Let, let's talk for a minute about hashish oil. We, we discussed this yesterday in this hour of the program. The, in my opinion, deplorable decision that Joe Biden has apparently made to try to negotiate a prisoner swap. Uh, Brittany Griner, who is the WNBA player, who was made the, I think in hindsight, incredibly, incredibly stupid decision to return to the Soviet, to return to Russia um, right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, occurred. So she made that decision, and then whether it was intentional or unintentional or whatever, you know, she had a small quantity, um, understand, small quantity of hashish oil in in her luggage, and of course, <clears throat> that that's illegal in in Russia. So she gets caught with a very very small quantity. This isn't Midnight Express. It's not like she's smuggling large quantities of opium. She's got what is clearly some personal use hashish oil in her luggage. She gets arrested. And now she's been detained since February, and there's talk that she's going to get a 10-year sentence. So the Biden administration is offering apparently a deal that in exchange for her release and the release of uh, another American who was convicted of of espionage and kind of like trumped-up charges, the United States would be willing to release a guy known as the Merchant of Death who was convicted in U.S. courts of of arms dealing. And, you know, we went through this before. Apparently, he was one, like one of the largest dealers in illegal arms in the world. He was finally apprehended as he was negotiating a deal to sell $20 million in surface-to-air missiles and things like that to a, a terrorist organization that had expressed the fact that they were going to use these to shoot American planes out of the sky. Russia has been trying to get him back since he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. And, and now we, we have this whole situation where... Where, you know, the question is like, what standards apply? It's not, it's not like you're in a war and there's like a prisoner exchange where you know you've got you've captured X number of German prisoners in World War II and you're trading them for X number of American prisoners. Um, it's not like in this Cold War where you've got a couple Russian spies that you're trading for a couple American spies. This this is a situation where you're talking about ta- trading dangerous criminals you know, major arms dealers, etc., for civilians like Brittany Griner, who's, as the New York Times describes, the real crime is only being caught up in the wrong place, wrong time, international intrigue. Because what should have happened is when she was trying to get into Russia, if she's got this hash oil, you, you find it, you fine her however much you're going to find her, and you, you expel her from the country. That That's how this happens in a rational world. But my concern all along has been if you start doing this, what you have just done is, first of all, you're appeasing. Um, in this case, you're appeasing Russia. Secondly, you are putting a kidnap me sign on any American who is traveling abroad, particularly traveling in a country where they're not particularly friendly to Americans because now you've given the green light. The Biden administration gives the green light to say, hey, go snatch these people up on any sort of trumped up charges that you want. And then you can use that to extort the release of spies or arms merchants or whatever. It is a and look, and I'm, I'm sorry this lady got caught up in this. I, I, I am. But 
And I, I appreciate the desire to try to get her back in this country. But you just do not appease people. And by doing this and offering these deals, you are, number one, dealing out of incredible weakness. And like I say, number two, you green light the kidnapping of any American who is traveling abroad because they could get you grabbed and then held hostage, essentially, to try to force the release of someone dangerous. That's why I think the Biden administration is making an enormous mistake in giving in to some loud voices on the left that want to arrange this. And and I I hope cooler heads prevail. But unfortunately, I I don't think so, because when it comes to at least this type of stuff, just like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Biden administration deals out of weakness. And I I, there's so they say, how do you get this woman back? Well, okay, you use diplomacy. You perhaps threaten to expel Russian diplomats or something like that. But you don't release somebody who's been convicted of, I don't know, trying to sell 200 or 20 million dollars in surface to air missiles to shoot American planes out of the sky. But I don't want to talk about hashish oil for the moment. What I want to talk about is marijuana. Now, one of the things that I think led to the election of Tony Evers in 2018 was the fact that in a number of left-leaning communities, in an effort to help juice the turnout, a number of communities put marijuana, legalized marijuana, non-binding referendums on the ballot. And so what happened is you had a bunch of people who were pro-marijuana who turned out, and some of them hung around to vote for Tony Evers. And that, coupled with a couple other things, I think was enough to make the difference in what was a close election. The Milwaukee County, in an effort to try to, I don't know, recapture old magic and knowing that Tony Evers needs every vote he can get, they're doing the same thing. They are spending Milwaukee County taxpayer money to put the identical, the exact same legalized marijuana referendum that they had on the ballot in 2018, they're going to put it on the November ballot this time. And their justification is, well, we want to see if people's opinions have changed. Bull. That's just complete and total bull. They're trying to juice the vote for Tony Evers. It is a blatant, you know, effort to try to manipulate the, the voters to try to, again, use government resources to turn out votes that they think are going to be more likely to go for the candidate that they support. It's a disgraceful act by the county board. But it, it again, doesn't change the underlying question of that pot remains illegal in Wisconsin. Now, in some communities, it has been decriminalized, but nevertheless, um, marijuana is not legal in the state. And again, it's it has become somewhat of a, a flashpoint here. If you poll on the question, polling tends to indicate that the majority of Wisconsinites support legalizing and then taxing marijuana. And then if you ask about medical marijuana, the numbers go up a lot more. The three Republicans running for governor, Rebecca Clayfish, Tim Michaels, and Tim Rantham, who's running, but who's going to be about the 3% solution, they're all on the record as opposing legalizing marijuana. And I don't get the sense that there's too much support going on in the state legislature for legalizing marijuana. Let's tee it up. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And for our purposes, I don't want to talk about medical marijuana. I think that that's a... 
completely and totally different sort of question that brings in all sorts of different considerations, namely, hey, if you've got somebody that, for example, has terminal cancer and they're being prescribed like heavy-duty opiates, you know, why not have some degree of, why not have legal marijuana if it helps get, keep somebody appetite up or helps you know, stop with the nausea or whatever? That That's a different story. But I want to talk about recreational use of pot. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we legalize it in Wisconsin, and should there be any limitations on it beyond you have to be 18 or 21 or whatever that would be? What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We're back to the sixties. I don't want to talk about medical marijuana. I want to talk about legalizing recreational use of marijuana. Three Republican candidates for governor all say that they're, they're not on board with this. The vast majority of the Republican legislature is not on board with this. Should we legalize marijuana in this state? Chuck in Manitowoc. Chuck, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Hi. Good. I I'm going to preface this by saying I don't get high. And I don't drink, okay? So I've got no, really no dog in the fight. But when you start looking at the amount of money that we could be bringing in from tax revenue, from sales, from other jobs, mm-hmm. the last the last uh, referendum for the election that you said juice, was juicing the results, it was, what, 71 or 73% of the people wanted legal marijuana. Yeah, probably in, that was in Milwaukee but County, but yeah, yeah. Okay, but Wisconsin is one of three states that does not have binding referendums. So, I mean, you could have 99% of the people that want it, and our Republican legislation won't do anything about it. Right. The um, I've talked to Devin Lemmick, who at, at his listening sessions, the president of the Senate, and he flat out told me that he it will never be legalized in Wisconsin if he has anything to say about it. Mm-hmm. That he, he will not allow Wisconsin to become a rogue state, his exact words. So, you know, I thought they were they were elected to do what the people want. Well, so we have a the people want it. Why aren't. Well, Chuck, I mean, thanks for no, we, we have a representative democracy, which means we elect our representatives who make those decisions. Now, I, I don't want to get too far afield on this. I, I think if you look at, we're going to talk about California being a mess in a little while on today's program. But, I mean, one of the reasons California is such a mess, I think, is because you have these binding referendums where, you know, people can make decisions that, um, oh, that this sounds really good without necessarily, then you have this referendum, and then you have to end up living with that. But, I mean, that, that's uh, clear. Clearly, for example, that's what that's what they're trying to do in Milwaukee County. They're trying to, again, this year, juice the turnout by asking the same pro-pot question, hoping that they're going to get people who otherwise wouldn't vote, who will turn out to vote on the pot referendum, and then stick around and vote for Mandela Barnes and for Tony Evers. Now, the way you make this issue go away is if you legalize pot. But that's, I guess the question becomes, should we legalize pot in Wisconsin and, and then Tax it eight five five six one six one six twenty. See to me here 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 is the problem. I understand the, the whole argument about well you know we we have alcohol that's legal and pot is no worse than that and maybe better. I guess my question is if we accept that there's problems with people driving drunk and things like that. Wh- 
What what do we gain by you know legalizing something that's going to at least encourage a certain segment of society to kind of check out and drive high or, or whatever. I mean, is is the fact that, well, we've got liquor that's legal, is that a justification for doing this? 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how's it going? Good. What do you think? Well, um, kind of like the last caller and exactly what you said, the whole thing is that, I mean, I understand that Wisconsin is a drunk state, really. It's an alcohol-fueled state, and we have the Tavern League that's making sure that we, we all have our beer and our alcohol. We have the most lenient drunk driving laws, and it's ridiculous. I mean, weed has been proven safer than alcohol, and just look at the surrounding states. I mean, Chicago alone, just last year, you can look it up. million they made. I mean, if we wanted to fix the parks, the roads, anything, we could get it done. I just don't understand because it's not like people in in Milwaukee aren't smoking weed. They are. They're just buying it, you know, illegally. Do you think if you legalize it, if you legalize it, do you think more people would use it? I I think more people uh, that... I think more people that would be afraid of it or would be more apt to try it. Yeah. You know, like, think of, like, how CBD came around, Mm -hmm. you know? Before everyone knew what CBD was, people thought, oh, there's no way I'm going to take a a gummy, a CBD edible. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, Steve Scafidi sells uh, shills for it, you know? But, I mean, and that's, it's just kind of accepting. The thing is, like, we accept alcohol, um, and it. And we look the other way when people are drunk driving. I mean, there are so many things that show that weed has benefits, you know. Why Why wouldn't we just take the money from this? Okay, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I mean here, here would be the argument. And the argument would be, first of all, the, the, and, and I, I, I appreciate your comment. I agree. I don't think there's any question that if you legalized it, you would have a lot more people that would be smoking dope. And so then the question becomes, is that something that's good for society? Do we want to encourage people, you know, walking around high? Do we want to encourage the use of that? And I get the argument that, well, we let people drink, and I, I get it, understand, but there's really not... You know, you, you can go out and you can have a beer because you like the taste of beer. If you're smoking dope, you're doing it because you want to get high. That's just, the, I mean, there's, there's nothing aesthetically pleasing about, oh, you know, it's not like, hey, I, I like a fine glass of wine. That, that, that's, I like the way it tastes or, or whatever. No, I mean, if you're smoking dope, you're doing it because you want to get high. That, that's, I think, the, the bottom line of all that. So the argument is, okay, is that good for our society if we accept the premise that if you do that, more and more people are going to be going around and they're going to be getting high? You can argue, I think, fairly that, well, it's no more dangerous than alcohol and maybe in some cases better. But if we accept all the problems with alcohol, th- does that mean you want to go the other direction? Let's talk to Mike in Menominee Falls. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. What do you think? Um, so I'm thinking it from more of a political standpoint of, uh, you know, what a chess move this was on the on the Democrat side, uh, what the uh, Republican response is going to be. I feel like this would be a, a good one for Tim Michaels to actually jump behind and separate himself from Rebecca Clayfish because I don't see her changing her stance on this. No. And for him to come out as, as kind of a different Republican and, and try to get more votes than her, 
in the primary, I feel like this would be a, a good topic for him to uh, get behind and support. Yeah, he's already on record as saying no, but there there is, I mean, you can make, that, that that's kind of the libertarian argument there, the, the idea that, you know, government shouldn't be telling us what to do. You know, the problem, Mike, is that you go down that route, and then, then the question is, is there any sort of limitation? And I I, I understand you can take a position, in my opinion, saying legalized pot is okay um, and still say, but I'm not willing to legalize methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin or opioids or things like that. You can make that position um, known. Thanks for the call. I, it, I mean, I think it, it would clearly differentiate Tim Michaels. There, there's no doubt about it, but I think he's already on record as saying it's not going to happen. But bottom line is, you know, we are kind of an island around here when it comes to, you know, legalizing of marijuana. I, I, I've never been in favor of it, uh, which, again, separating the issue of recreational use versus medical marijuana, which to me, like I say, is a whole different story. If you were to do it, you, you, you need to figure out how, how are we going to set limits for people driving, operating heavy machinery while they're high and things like that. And it's it's much more difficult to quantify, for example, because now, you know, we, we do have laws when it comes to alcohol. OK, if you're if you're caught and your blood alcohol level is over point zero eight, you know, that that's in and of itself is an offense. Alcohol is much uh, marijuana is much tougher to measure. Marijuana stays in your system a lot longer. You, you have to, I think, figure out things like that as, as well. I think at some point in time, there is going to come a day when marijuana is going to be legal in the city, in the state of Wisconsin. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, though. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to something that, that again, is going viral. And I, I guess one of the things that has been disappointing to me over the, you know, two and a half decades now that I've been doing a radio show in this market is the fact that I call it the coarsening of, of politics and the fact that, in general, our, our culture is getting ruder. And I, I I understand there's lots of practitioners of this, and don't text me and say, oh, Donald Trump you know, did this and that and the other thing, because I'm not going to defend Donald Trump's be- behavior and his re- remarks. But stuff that normally people would not do, they, they now end up doing regularly. And, and this is the latest example of this. I sent out a tweet. It's called, I, the headline was like, Stay Classy, Linda. Yesterday, the every year, as, as a as a charity fundraiser, they have a Republicans versus Democrats baseball game, and they played it at uh, Nationals Park, so it's Major League Baseball. They sold 17,000 tickets, and again, the proceeds go to charity. Now, there were some protesters there. Some of the, the environmental left said, oh, how dare can you how dare you play charity when the play, you know, baseball for charity when the, the world is going to, you know, end anytime soon. But but nevertheless, they went ahead and did it. So there's this clip. And again, I've got a link to it. Um, the, the Republicans beat the Democrats 10 to nothing. Um, there's a clip of a congresswoman. Her name is Linda Sanchez. She represents, of course, California. And she 
she walks. She gets a walk. I think it's like the fifth or the sixth inning. So she, she goes, she walks to first base, and then she's pulled for a, a pinch runner. So they're going to get somebody else in. So th- there's this video of her as she's running back to the dugout. She's on the, the Democrats' dugout is apparently on the third baseline. So she runs past the Republicans' dugout, which is on the first base side, and she makes an obscene gesture at the Republicans. I mean, it, it's like she just flashes, she just flips them the bird. As as she's running by, and there doesn't appear to be any sort of provocation. She just decides that she's going to make this this obscene gesture, and it's it's out there. And look, and I I understand that again, politics isn't beanbag, and I understand that you know there, there's no reaching across the aisle to discuss things. But I'm, and I understand again, don't don't see, throw Donald Trump as the example of well, you know, Trump did this or that or the other thing. But I just just remember how embarrassing a lot of the stuff that Trump said and did was. But but here you, you have a flip side of this. You have this congresswoman who just decides she wants to make an obscene gesture. And I look, I understand it's not the biggest issue in the world, but it's like, have we no class? I mean, seriously, I mean, have have we no class that this is what we're going to do? And, and these these are the, the people that theoretically, you know, you w- want our kids to aspire to grow up to be. You know, we we want you to be leaders. We want you to be elected officials and stuff. And, and this is this is the example you give. And I acknowledge you can find examples of this on the right. But the most recent one and the high profile one is this congresswoman just gratuitously, gratuitously deciding that she's going to make an obscene gesture at the Republicans in the dugout. I mean, you know, stay classy, Linda. I mean, seriously. All right, I want to revisit something that we, we discussed briefly yesterday, but from a, a slightly different perspective as we try to lighten things up a little bit on a Friday afternoon show. Uh, Bruce Springsteen um, has announced that for the first time since 2017, I think, he, he's going to be doing a, a tour, and it's going to start next February in Tampa, Florida, and one of the tour dates is in uh, Milwaukee at Pfizer Forum next next March. There's been a lot of controversy involving the pricing of this tour, and I think there's some confusion as to how some of this works. Ticketmaster, which is the the big dog when it comes to ticketing and things of the like. Ticketmaster, together with the venues and the artists, became upset and irritated with the fact that they would set the price for tickets at a certain amount and then what would happen is you would have the the these the i'm going to say scalpers but the the resellers who would go in and would buy up all the tickets and then what they would do is they would sell them on the secondary market for three or four or five times what they paid for them and the artists got mad the venues got mad the artists got upset because they're like well wait a second what why shouldn't we get that (laughs) if somebody's willing to spend five thousand dollars for a seat to the bruce springsteen concert why why should Bruce Springsteen charge $250 for that seat? Why shouldn't Springsteen and the venue get that, that money? Why should it go to, like, the ticket broker? And and there, there there's an understand. I mean, I understand the, the point there. So what Ticketmaster has started doing is they call this, it's dynamic, they call it dynamic pricing. And what happens is they have a computer algorithm that raises the prices based on demand. So if there is, you're you're trying to buy a floor seat to Springsteen, and you're in the queue with with everybody else, and this algorithm algorithm kicks in, what what it does 
is it bumps the price from, let's say it's $250 or whatever. It bumps the price up you know, based on the demand. So it'll increase the price to 500 or 1,000 or 2,000, or in the Springs, case of Springsteen, four and $5,000. That's the computer algorithm kicking in through Ticketmaster. But it's done with the blessing of the artist because the idea then is if you buy that ticket for $4,500, the money, that $4,500 that you've spent, it's going to Springsteen. It, it's going to Ticketmaster. It's going to the, the venue as opposed to going to the resale. So that's that's why they do this. But the truth of the matter is how this works out is that the artist ends up making an enormous amount of money more. Now, I have, as I argued yesterday, I mean, I, I think that nobody holds a gun to your head and makes you buy tickets to any sort of show. And I, I think I'm a free market guy. And if people are willing to to spend Three or four or five thousand dollars to get a third row seat to a Springsteen concert. I say go with God. That's the choice that you are making. It's not a choice I would make, but it's the choice that you are making. And candidly, I guess I don't have as much of a problem if I would rather see the money go to the artist and the venue than I would see it go to the the secondary seller. I, I mean, I think. That that's the case. The flip side of this argument, though, is, hey, you know, Bruce Springsteen, you're the working man guy. And, you know, a lot of your fans are being priced out. But that's that's why dynamic pricing works and that why they do it, because they say, OK, well, if people are willing to spend a lot more than face value. We're going to adjust face value so you don't have to buy the tickets on the secondary market. And again, if you pay those inflated prices, it goes to the artist. So that's why. That's what's going on there. And again, if you don't want to spend that money, don't and you know save the money and watch the concert a day later on YouTube TV or whatever. But I got to thinking about artists and the cost of tickets. And, and my point yesterday was, as I get a little bit older, I, I've seen a lot of the artists from the 60s and the 70s and, and the 80s, the, the big touring acts, whether it's Springsteen or the Rolling Stones or Willie Nelson or, you know, you, you name it. I, I've seen them many, many times. And I, I guess rather for me, rather than spending what I'm going to describe as stupid money to see Bruce Springsteen for the fifth or sixth time, no knock on Springsteen, I, I'm just I'm, I'm not going to spend that kind of money even if I – had that discretionary money and chose to do it. That's just not how I would choose to spend the money. I would rather spend that money, uh, a fraction of that money, and try to find some up-and-coming act that I I could see at a different venue. But that's a choice that I am making. I I thought this is interesting, though, because obviously lots and lots of people are out there and they're willing to spend hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars to see a particular performer. And that, I think, would be an interesting conversation. And that's what I want to discuss with you. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Here is my question. What is the most amount of money that you would be willing to spend on a ticket for your favorite performer and who would that performer be? 855-616-1620. I mean, I, I like Bruce Springsteen, but there's no way in God's green earth that I drop 2000 or 3000 or 4000 or $5,000 for a ticket to the show. There's no performer out there that I would spend that kind of money on, yet people are doing it. All right, what's the most you would spend for a ticket, and who? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the interesting thing about this topic, of course, is that no, nobody's forcing you to buy Springsteen tickets or tickets to Rolling Stones or tickets to Willie Nelson or tickets to anybody else. Um, th- the question is, how much are you willing to pay for them? And I guess, I, I you know, at this stage in my life, I, I think for me... 150 to 200 bucks, and that would be for somebody that I really want to, to see. I mean, like, it'd be one of my favorite performers. I, I just can't see spending more than $200 a ticket. And, and I'd, I'd have to swallow hard before I do that because, of course, you're, you're going with your spouse or, you know, so you're doubling that. And it, it's not a question of can you afford it or not. For me, it's just, I don't know that I'd get that much enjoyment out of that. For me, that's kind of the thing. It's 150 to 200. No way in the world would I spend thousands of dollars to see Springsteen. 855-616-1620. Bobby, Bobby, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Thank you for taking my call. Okay, how much and who? Well, I took my daughter one time to the Chicago Theater and my wife down to Rockford a different time. We had seats right in front of Willie Nelson. Or if you've ever gone to his concerts, they're in small venues. Right. And you're about two or three feet from the stage. And he's right there. And I paid six fifty a seat. Okay. Thirteen hundred bucks. Did you um was it worth it? Thirteen hundred bucks, yes. Was it worth it? It was worth it. I'll tell you my wife. Usually when I take her to something like that, she'll say, you know, that was nice, but you know what, don't do it again. Well, we got to the parking garage, got in our car, and my wife, I said, what did you think? My wife looks at me, she goes, I'll tell you what, Willie Nelson was singing to me all night. I would do that again in a heartbeat. (laughs) Okay, so that was going to be my next question. All right, so Willie is still touring. Willie's 86 years old. Would, would you, if you had the opportunity to get similar seats like that, again, would you drop another 650 on him? In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Okay, good enough. Thanks. All right, well, that's the question. You know, how much is the most that you would spend, and who would it have to be? 855-616-1620. Gianni and Montello, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Great question. Hey, I don't understand these exorbitant prices to see these great acts, but I'll tell you, there are three bands, Rush, The Who, and Reunited Led Zeppelin. Um, and I would pay, I would pay a hundred bucks for a really good seats, but that's my limit, Jeff. Yeah. And you're, I, I, my guess is for those three acts, you're, I'm not sure you're even getting in the door for a hundred bucks. <laughs> you're, you're probably in the nosebleed seats no, at a stadium. No. That would kind of be my guess. <laughs> All right, thanks for the call. Appreciate hey. it. Well, that, that's. I mean, again, we, you you set these different things, Jeff. The most I've ever spent on tickets were for Paul McCartney at Miller Park in 2013, two hundred and fifty dollars each. No. No regrets. Um, Jeff, uh, let's see, this is Ken. About 20 years ago, I saw Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Completely worth it. Would do it again in a heartbeat. It was about 200 bucks a ticket. Yeah, that's, again, that, now that's a few years ago, so you knew if, if, not that those four are going to ever reunite again either, but you knew if you, you could get some of them back again, that the prices would be up. Um, Jeff, you'd have to pay me to go to a Springsteen concert. Um, that's Jeff. I spent $2,000 for a VIP Bon Jovi experience. It included second row seats in the concert, a picture with the band. She's actually got a picture of that attached here and a question and answer session before the concert. It was a once in a lifetime experience. I wouldn't pay that again. It was awesome though. Yeah, I could. I guess 
you know, for for that that whole overall experience, like the you know, the in person meet and greet and things like that. Would I go over two fifty? You know, m- yeah, I, I think you know maybe, but I'm just it just for like a, a regular ticket to a show. That that's kind of my that's kind of my limit, Jeff. I am reluctant to spend a lot on concerts because many times it's ruined by inconsiderate, obnoxious people in the audience in front of me. Well, you always kind of take that risk, uh, Jeff. For me, most I would spend five hundred bucks. It would be. Paul McCartney. Jeff, what about Packers tickets or Super Bowl tickets? An average person has no chance of getting in for a decent price. Amen to that. I mean, a, amen to that. The, the the costs are just nuts. The The last time the Packers were in the Super Bowl against Pittsburgh and Dallas, I, I, I went, and that was a pricey affair. I was able to get tickets through the station. I had to pay for them, but at least I, I, I paid face value for the tickets, which even back then... I want to say it was about five hundred bucks. I, I could be off on, on that, but but that was. I mean, I thought I was getting a bargain just paying face value for those different um, tickets. Jeff, yeah, even if they re- reunited and came to the U.S., my limit would be three hundred bucks for a front row seat to the Dutch band Stream of Passion. Well, I, I think um, you know that's. That's good. Jeff, I think um, Marty Stewart tickets start at $70 at a venue at Door County. I'm debating that. Or $200 for a meet and greet backstage. Yeah, there's the element of that. Jeff Duran Duran, August 20th in Chicago. I'm spending $150. That is my max. I think that's where uh, a lot of, see, I think that's where, where a lot of people are. And again, I, the, it's tough for me to get too worked up about you know all the consternation involving the Springsteen tickets and the dynamic pricing and that that's just it's it's supply and demand and I guess I understand what they're doing and candidly if people are willing to spend four or five thousand dollars for a ticket God God bless them that's not me and I guess I would prefer. I would prefer that that money go to the artist and the venue as opposed to the, the secondary seller. So if that's what dynamic dynamic pricing is all about, that that's great. I'm just saying I, I'm not even if I could afford to play or to swim in that particular pool, the, the deep end is way too deep, and I think I'm going to pass. Jeff, I spent three hundred dollars on a ticket to see Elton John. It was worth it. I would do that again. Um, Jeff, I've seen just about everyone I've wanted to. I wouldn't spend more than a hundred dollars on anyone. Funny story. Family except for dad saw Sinatra when he was here. Twenty five dollars per ticket. Dad said he wouldn't pay twenty five dollars to see the second coming. <laughs> you, you, you got, you gotta love it. Um, Jeff, $500 for tickets to see the Rolling Stone, pit tickets to see the Rolling Stones last October. Wife and I still have a buzz from that one. Of course, I paid $10 to see them at the old county stadium in June of 1975. Still great to see that. Jeff got two spring tickets for about $750. Probably would have gone to $6, 600 bucks each a piece to pacify my hubby. Um, I've seen him five times. It's an amazing experience. Probably be the last chance he's going to be 73. Okay, Melissa Barkley, most money you would pay to see somebody and and who that would be? Oh, that's a good question. I Personally, right now, yeah. maybe 100 bucks, but yeah. I think in the big scheme of thing, things, if it was really someone I wanted to see, 200 would be tops, tops. Okay. Nothing more than that. I don't know who I would actually, that's the thing, I can't think of anybody that I would want to pay 200 bucks to see. <laughs> right. I mean, for real. No, no, for real. I haven't seen the Stones, but 
I mean, I don't know if I'd want to pay two hundred bucks. Right. Exactly. No. That that's that's the balance. Uh, yeah. As, as, as I have, like I said, I mean, I've I've seen all these I, many of the big acts of the sixties and seventies yeah. and and even eighties. I've seen on multiple occasions, and I, I mean, I saw Rod Stewart at, at Summerfest, and you know, so you were saying how you got some free tickets before, like Billy Joel at Lambeau Field. I saw him, but I had free tickets. Yeah, I mean, I, I so. have I, I have friends who have the tickets, and if they want to invite me, I, I'm I'm more than willing to mooch. I mean, we're more than willing to freeload on that. But if 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 I'm reaching into my own pocket to see a particular performer. I have to swallow really, yeah, really yeah. hard before like 150 to 200 right. bucks would be it. And tops. T- tops. That, that's it for me. If somebody says, you can afford it. It's not a question of affording it. It's a question of how, how much do you enjoy the experience, you yeah. know, and, and worth that. So that's it for me. Okay, Melissa. New Jersey is the state that over the last couple of years has had the most people leaving it, high, highest per capita percentage of people bailing. Would you like to guess what the, the state that has had the second most people leaving is? I would say New York. You would say New York. Mm-hmm. I will give you the answer, and I will pose a question coming up right after the break. Can't go wrong with the Beach Boys on a Friday afternoon. And that that is the answer to the question. Before the break, I asked Melissa, okay, New Jersey is the state that's had the most outbound people over the course of the last couple of years. But but after New Jersey, what state has had the, the second most people that are bailing or are leaving? And the answer is California. Matter of fact, there there's a big story in the L.A. Times this morning that caught my attention. The headline is California Exodus Continues with L.A. and San Francisco Leading the Way. Let me read you a portion of the story. After living in the Bay Area for nearly seven years, Harry Ragavan and his wife decided to leave for the East Coast late last year. They were both working remotely and wanted to leave California because of the high cost of living and urban crime. So they made a list of potential relocation cities before choosing Miami for its sunny weather and what they perceived was a better sense of safety. Um, the guy said that their Oakland house had been broken into four times, that the uh, that, and that prior to the pandemic, his wife called him every day during her seven minute walk from the BART station. That's the, that's the subway Bay Area rapid transit because she felt safer with someone on the phone. After moving to Miami, he said they accidentally left their garage door open one day and were floored when they returned home and found nothing had been stolen. We moved to the Bay Area because we had to be there if you want to work in tech and startups. And now that's no longer a tether. We took a long, hard look and said, wait, why are we here again? He said there wasn't much of a draw in California's quality of life, local or social policies, or cost of living. That forced us to question where we actually wanted to live. An acceleration of people leaving coastal California began during the first year of the pandemic, but new data show it has continued even after lockdowns and other COVID restrictions have eased. California ranks second in the country for outbound moves, a phenomenon that has snowballed during the pandemic. And then it it talks about this, and it goes on to say that they ask people why they're leaving. And they say, citing changes in work-life balance, opportunities for remote work, 
more people deciding to quit their job. Droves of Californians are living leaving for states like Texas, Virginia, Washington, and Florida. California lost more than 352,000 residents between April of 2020 and January of 2022. San Francisco and Los Angeles rank first and second in the country, respectively, for outbound moves as the cost of living and housing prices continue to balloon and homeowners flee to less expensive cities. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For for decades, California was the place where people wanted to move. Hey, it's, it's you know, move to San Diego, and it's perfect. The weather's like 78 degrees, you know, every day, and there's sunshine, and you've got the Pacific Ocean that's right there, and if you want, you've got mountains that are, you know, within like two hours, and you can go and you can ski, and you can do all this stuff, and the weather's absolutely perfect, and you've got the laid-back vibe and culture and stuff. Well, that that's pretty much... That's pretty much over, and people are starting to vote with their pocketbooks, and and they're bailing. And there's a lot of reasons that big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco in particular, I think a lot of the liberal social policies have just turned out to be a complete failure, and people are bailing on it. The cost of living is through the roof. People can't afford to stay there, and... I think a variety of other things as well, especially now that you have more people that are able to work remotely. So, hey, if you wanted to work in tech, you had to be there. Now you can pretty much work anywhere. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question to you. When you make a decision as to where it is that you want to live, what, what is what is your driving choice? Now, I understand sometimes there's just you you don't have options. It's like, okay, well, I've got to I work at this particular place and, you know, I I have to I have to work here or or maybe it's maybe it's family. But what's you're, you're having what you're seeing is more and more people who were perhaps drawn to California because of the climate or, you know, what they perceive to be the way the lifestyle was going to be. They're finding that it, it ain't that great. And so what they're doing is they're just choosing to pick up and move, and they're moving in huge numbers. For you, in making the decision where you want to live, what's the number one factor that's driving your choice? And one of the reasons I ask this is because earlier this week, for example, we had Governor, gubernatorial candidate Rebecca Clayfish in, you know, and she was talking about the challenge moving forward in trying to, okay, keep young people here in Wisconsin and keep older people, keep retirees here in Wisconsin instead of having a move to, say, like lower tax states and things of the like. So when you're making your decision as to where you want to live, what, what's what's first and foremost? What's the factor that drives that decision? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're just joining us, LA Times has this big story about how people are hundreds of thousands of people are, are bailing on California. It's they've got a situation where for the first time in a long time you have a, a net exodus of, of people. And there's lots of reasons, particularly like in San Francisco and Los Angeles. It's the high cost of living, it's crime, it's dissatisfaction with a lot of the social policies, it's lack of affordable housing. Somebody says, well, there there's some rents for $4,000. Well, yeah, that's the problem that, you know, middle class and even upper middle class people can't afford that. 
that. So what they're doing is they're moving out and they're finding other places they can live in. Jeff, we moved to Florida four years ago. Remote work, no snow, no income tax, 365 days of tank tops and flip-flops and a Republican local government. Um, That's from Peter, who previously was in Genesee, now lives in Sarasota. Jeff, crime taxes, crime taxes, weather, and um, no COVID stuff. Sounds like Florida, doesn't it? Well, that's a factor. Jeff, for me, quality of life, low crime, quiet, respectful residents, followed by low property taxes and amenities. Jeff, quite honestly, for me, it's water tables. California, Nevada, Arizona are drying up the Colorado River. Let me stay in the Great Lakes area. Um, Jeff, for me, it's family. I say home is where the heart is. All right, what what drives your decisions? Let's start with uh, Tex in Sun Prairie. Good afternoon. Um, I am moved, I just closed down a place in Florida back in June, and I'll be moving there in the next week. But okay. The two main reason, reasons was warmer weather, great fishing, and fishing 12 months out of the year. Can I ask you how old you are? 60. I just retired back in May. Okay, so was this always in your plan that you were going to retire and then leave Wisconsin? Yes, I've been wanting to move to Florida for probably at least probably the last 25, 30 years. And exactly for them reasons, the fishing and the and the warmer weather. Well, I, right, and that's and did you ever consider like going to the West Coast, like going to California or something like that? Or was oh, that no, California is too crazy. <laughs> okay, the way I go to California, too crazy. Okay, now thanks for calling. Well, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are apparently agreeing with you because Florida continues to to pick up lots of population. Um, I, actually, one of my notes, I, I have some friends who live in in the Phoenix area. One of the places that a lot of people in California are migrating to now is Arizona, and actually it's creating a little bit of an issue because this is anecdotal but they're like okay you got these people with the california sensibilities who are coming to arizona and then are trying to turn arizona into california and they want to say you left california for precisely a lot of these things and now you want to recreate it in arizona we don't think so i'm mike in bayview mike you're on wtmj good afternoon hi jeff hi mike one of the big things i would be one of the big things that i'd be looking at you know is the taxes you know my wife and i uh, I'm, I'm retired, but my wife still, she's going to retire come next spring. And, you know, we're, you know, we, we've been talking over about, you know, what we want to do. And, you know, the taxes, that would be a big thing, you know. Now, another thing, too, is our family. Our family all lives here. You know, every time we, if we move to, uh, say, my, my other daughter lives in California, every time we want to come back here to see them or, you know, Christmas or something, we're going to have to get airfare, you know. And that airfare, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous, you know, especially right. when you're on a limited thing. Right. And then, uh, uh we have a, we have friends of ours that moved to Florida, and uh, they said a big thing down there is they said that the is the uh, uh, the doctors. You know, you turn on, you got you know, they're up here for six months. They go back there. Well, now they got to get re-signed up for different doctors and stuff like that. They're having trouble trying to keep doctors for medical uh, medical problems. And another thing too is that people he says that people don't look at is the dedu- uh, how much you're paying for uh, deductible for on your house. You know, for storms. They right. said they've been getting Insurance. a lot more storms. He said ever before. Yeah. yeah, and he said that it is really ridiculous. Well, there, I mean, thanks. No, you're right. No, there's there's issues everywhere. There, there's no question. I mean, you know, a lot of the the coastal cities. You're, you're exactly right. You've seen like the the cost for flood insurance and for insurance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like kind of like go through the roof because you know you, you've had the the hurricanes that have moved through or whatever. And, and I think you you know it's interesting that you point make the point about family because I think that's a big factor. I have uh, I have a, a pretty good friend who. 
I retired. Oh, it's probably going on a year now. And what they did is they, they, they have a place here, but they also bought a place in North Carolina. And they kind of bounce back and forth between the two. But they have a child here, a grown child, with, with grandchildren. And they have, I think, two grown children in the North Carolina area. So it, it's sort of the perfect thing. They're, they're bouncing back and forth because family is extremely important. A, another pretty close friend of my wife lived in Wisconsin his entire life and then he and his wife they when they retired they they moved to North Carolina again because they're they're close to their children so i think in some respects you you do tend to follow your family of course if you're in a nice area like if you got a got a nice place in florida or something my guess is your family might follow you as well mike in illinois mike you're on wtmj good afternoon good afternoon jeff how are you good what do you think where what what drives your decision as to where to live so, I, I, as I told you, Screener, it's work followed by a close second with family because I guess work is a little more, um, I don't want to say important, but um, it's, it it's directly affects my quality of life um, where I work. And I know that I can visit my family wherever I'm at. I'm lucky because all my family, at least immediate family, is in Chicago or Illinois and Wisconsin. So I can visit them, and probably if I did move somewhere far away, I'd rethink that and realize that family is more important. Yeah. So I'd probably take it for granted a little bit. But work is very important to my quality of life, and I'm not somebody who can work from home. I'm out in the field all day, so right. um, you know, that's important to me. Well, no, thanks for calling. And I think that, I mean, I think obviously that, that drives a lot of people's decisions, too. Jeff, I would never live in Florida. Too much heat and too many Republicans. Well, um, as far as the heat, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be in Florida. And my, my wife was just down in Florida in July, and she said, never again. She said, it was 100 degrees and 90% humidity. But um, I, I will tell you, you know, you, you can't beat Florida, just like I think you can't beat southeastern Wisconsin um, in, I don't know, June, July, August, September. I'm here to tell you there's lots of places in Florida you, you can't beat for November and December and January and February and March and, and maybe even April. Um, let's see. Jeff, um, it was eight years ago. I moved kicking and screaming from Milwaukee to Charlottesville, Virginia, for my husband's job. We always had the expectation of eventually moving back to the city. However, I never expected to appreciate the safety a more rural suburban area has brought to our lives. Despite the high cost of living in our new location, I can't see us giving up that comfort and personal freedom afforded to us by the low crime rate. Uh, Jeff, I like Wisconsin and the diversity of everything it offers, and I can travel anywhere else in the United States and spend time when I want a temporary change of pace. I think it's going to be really interesting as to all these people as they move out of places like New Jersey and California, and whether they take their politics with them or not, how long will the states they move to continue to be the states they like? Well, that's that ties into what I was saying before, you know, people in Arizona saying, don't California my, my Arizona. It's like, okay, you, you left San Francisco because you didn't like a lot of the stuff that was going on in San Francisco, and now you want to kind of recreate it in Arizona. Jeff, my brain says, please, 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 let's go where the warmth is, and the guilt of my family keeps me here. Well, it shouldn't necessarily be guilt. Jeff, our dairy cows keep us in Wisconsin. Can't imagine leaving our roots. Um, Okay, so you've got that there. Jeff, an outdoor sports paradise is my dream. Hunting and fishing is how I relax. Well, it it is all these different factors, and I think, you know, this is the, the one 
the one thing that you have to balance. Jeff, I've lived in Wisconsin my whole life. I guess not having hurricanes and having plenty of water due to Lake Michigan and a lower risk of tornadoes and floods and forest fires, I guess weather stability would be number one. I love visiting Florida, but I will die in Wisconsin. Well, that's, I, look, I bring this topic up because I think it's intriguing that you have people who thought that, hey, I'm going to live in California. California is going to be the, this is going to be the paradise. And at least, I'm sure some people still believe it to be that case, but a lot of other people are saying, you know, maybe that this isn't so great. I I do think it is a challenge for our leaders because, let's face it, there's a lot of great things we have going for us in Wisconsin, but weather is not one of them. Tax climate is, is another, and that's why I think if we're going to attract younger people, get people who were born and bred in Wisconsin to stay here and keep retirees here, at least as at least as as re- permanent residents of Wisconsin, you got to look at stuff like, all right, gee, you know, do do we what do we do with the state income tax? And if somebody can move to Tennessee or they can move to Florida in their retirement and they don't have to pay a state income tax, maybe maybe they're more likely to do it. Maybe we need to reassess how we handle things. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Melissa Barkley, are you a, are you a Vegas girl? I've never been to Vegas, no. You, so the answer would be no. You've yeah, never, that'd be no. Do you, do you have any desire to go or not really? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've heard about it. Like, it's great maybe once, but yeah, no. Okay. I'm, I'm good, I think. Okay. Well, I'm kind of a Vegas. I used to go more than I could. We would probably end up going. I'm going I'm going for a long weekend in October to see the Jimmy Buffett show. We're talking about concerts oh, cool. and stuff. Mm-hmm. But we go... I'd say, I mean, there, there are years that I would go three or four times now, maybe once or twice. I mean, I wouldn't say no. I would like to visit, I guess, maybe once, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, it's inter- I bring this up because we were talking about where people want to relocate and where people want to live and all the different sort of things. And obviously, weather is a big factor. Did you see what happened in Vegas yesterday, though? I did though? see that, the monsoon down the strip. M- major yeah, flooding. Yeah. Um, you can check this out on, it's all over the internet and stuff, but um, there the, this this is the dry they call it the monsoon season but nevada has been having like record droughts and for the last day or two they've been in this area where it's just you get rain and rain and rain and rain and rain but even at that that it's so what what happened is on on the strip which is First of all, it's the desert, so the, the water has nowhere to go. It's not like in Florida where, you know, the, the everything's on, like, sand-based stuff. So you get, you know, in Florida, it's not unusual, for example, in any given afternoon to get, depending on where you're in Florida, but if you're, like, in southern Florida, it's not unusual to get, like, an inch of rain. It just opens up, and for an hour and a half, it, it rains like no one needs to build a boat, and, and then it stops, but you don't have major problems because the, the ground soaks this all in. Well, in the desert especially like Las Vegas where you know it's all concrete and stuff there's nowhere for water to go so they had major flooding yesterday um and it's interesting because it was only about an inch of rain you know, which we would say well an inch of rain we get an inch of rain out here and that that's a lot of rain but it, it's you know there there's places for it to go where there's not in Las Vegas so if you're looking at these different clips of this you see um that a number of the parking garages along the strips, they had, they had the strip, they had water that were pouring into them. Um, um, you had, like, at, at Caesars, they had, you know, water that was coming in through the roof and was like, <laughs> it's kind of funny because you're watching all these people and they're just still playing the slot machines. It's like water is dripping down from the ceiling and things like that. But it's just, it's, 
an inch of rain causes all these different problems. And they're concerned today because apparently the forecast is for another like about inch of rain or so because they've got these these strong storm cells that are just kind of training over there but um lots of rain the air um the, if, if you've ever been to las vegas and you know the airport that you fly into and apparently the the baggage area and stuff that was that was starting to flood with water and all it's just it's just this kind of a, it all I, my point i guess is that you, you've got different issues all across the, the country. And, um, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada in general, the whole West Coast needs rain, at least the, the southern portion of the, the West Coast desperately needs rain. But then you don't need the rain all at once. And they had a situation where you, you got a lot of rain, but you got it all at once. And it created a huge, huge problem. All right. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about, as long as we're talking about getting around and quality of life, there's an interesting issue that I want to put to you. First, though, Jim Ursay, owner and CEO of the NFL's Indianapolis Colts, is bringing items from the Jim Ursay Collection, a renowned assemblage of iconic artifacts and things ranging from rock music to American history and pop culture to Chicago Tuesday. It's August 2nd, 2022 at Aeon Grand Ballroom at the Navy Pier. This is also going to include a performance by the Jim Ursay Band and a special appearance by Ann Wilson of Heart. Um, our official contest rules, uh, you can visit WTMJ.com. But first, I've got two more tickets. We've been doing this all week. I've got two free tickets to give away to this experience. It's next Tuesday. Let's give it to caller number 11 at 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller 11, 855-616-1620. Wins a pair of tickets to the Jim Ursay Collection and a chance to attend the show. Okay, we have the winner of our last pair of tickets, and thanks to the Jim Ursay folks for allowing us to give away tickets all week. I mentioned this yesterday, and it's I, I don't want to dwell on it other than the fact that it demonstrates the bias you have in the media, and it, it's almost like we're in this this 1984 world where we we change commonly known definitions when it suits our interest and the interest of the party in power. Like I said, I, I have a minor in economics. Okay, I always thought I'd want to be an ec- economist, but I didn't figure that there was a great way to make a living in that. But, okay, there there are certain... I appreciate that when it comes, just like the law, when it comes to economics, it, it, in many respects, it's an, it's an art, it's not a science. You have people who have different perceptions of of things and what different things mean. Nevertheless, there are some generally agreed on terms. One is what constitutes a recession. A recession in the textbooks is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth of gross national product. That that's that that's that's what a recession is by definition two consecutive quarters of negative growth period that, that's it now some recessions are worse than others you can argue that okay some recessions might be transitory some recessions might be uh, again caused by unique factors but it doesn't change the fact that a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth except when it's not and when is it not? 
Well, when it happens during a Joe Biden administration where we've got midterm elections coming up in three or four months and Joe Biden doesn't want to have Democrats running in the midterm elections and having headlines saying, hey, we're in a recession. And so you have Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary. She's saying, well, we're, we're not in a recession. We're in a state of transition. What? the heck does that mean it 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 is it is meaningless and then of course that's the headlines in all uh, not all but in, in many many newspapers across the country that i look at it's like well yes it is the typical definition of a recession but it's not a recession because joe biden says it's not a recession i'm looking at janet yellen's giving a statement saying well when you look at the economy job creation is continuing household finances remain strong consumers are spending businesses are growing this isn't a recession but the underlying fact is a recession is two quarters of negative growth so what what you know, Yellen could be arguing is that, hey, yes, this we're in a recession right now, but we think we're going to come out of it. We think that this has been caused by factors that are, are transitory, are going to pass and stuff. But instead, we're, we're being told, well, but no, this isn't a recession. Joe Biden, okay, the definition of a recession has been two quarters of negative growth, you know, since – that, that's since we've had economists talking about recessions, this idea that suddenly, suddenly the sky, it's always been the sky is blue, the sky is blue, the sky is blue. But when Joe Biden doesn't want the sky to be blue, now he and his allies in the administration and in the mainstream media decide, OK, well, he's now said the sky is red. So it's got to obviously be red. Get you, you can argue about where the economy is, and the stock markets had a bit of a re- more than a bit of a rebound. The stock markets had a good rebound this week, and things like that. And you can argue that hey, maybe we're going to avoid any sort of prolonged recession, and that that's all well and good. But the truth of the matter is, we're in a recession period, and you know, no amount of hoping and wishing can change that. Maybe a a positive quarter of economic growth is fine. But again, because it doesn't suit Biden's needs and it doesn't suit the needs of the administration and it doesn't suit the needs of the people that are running as Democrats, well, now we've got the mainstream media saying, yes, we've always always defined this as a recession, but now it's not. And it's, it's a recession. Argue about what it means. Argue about how significant it is. But let's not deny facts. Two plus two equals four. And... When you have two quarters of negative GNP growth, negative growth, that is a recession. Always has been, always will be. WTMJ is packing its bags. Those of us who work here are packing our bags as well and heading downtown. Wisconsin's radio station is moving to the avenue in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. Follow our progress all summer long as we embark on a journey to our new home. The avenue is vibrant. It's exciting. Plus, you'll be able to come by and see us. Yeah, there's there's windows. So if you happen to be down there, you can look in and we will be the boys and girls in the bubble. WTMJ's move to the avenue is sponsored by Coakley Brothers and Brothers Interior, the official moving and furniture provider of GKB Milwaukee. A number of people can continue to ask when when is the move and if you come over to our studios at radio city you would think it's going to be any moment because as you walk down the hallways you see uh giant bins that are collecting stuff and things of the like the plan is that our office staff the 
sales department, uh, everybody but the on-air people are going to be moving to the avenue in just a couple weeks. I think uh, mid-August is when that is scheduled. And then the studios, the broadcast studios, are going to be the last things that are going to be completed. And we have a hard date, uh, September, I believe, 26th, which is a Monday, um, all the on-air people are going to be out of Radio City, and we will be broadcasting from uh, from our new home at the Avenue. I mentioned this before. I got an opportunity. I haven't seen the office space, um, but I, I have seen the studios, and I know they're they're under construction. And people showed me what that was going to look like, and things of the like. And it's um, going to be it's certainly going to be different after leaving Radio City. And a number of people are saying, you know, what what is, what's going to happen to the building? And my answer is, I I do not know. Um, you know, for years and years, we shared a corporate identity with WTMJ, the TV station, and that ended um, five years ago or so, maybe a little bit more than that. And so we, we being the radio side, have just been tenants. We've been, we've been renting th- this area here. But um, TV only takes up about a quarter of this building. So what's going to happen after we leave? I do not know. But um, it is going to be exciting to go downtown, and it's a new facility, and I know lots and lots of people are excited about it. And be one of those things that uh, we, I, I think I think is clearly the right move for the future of this company, no question about it. You know, Speaking of, of downtown and the redevelopment, the um, new announcement is that there's a new hotel that is coming to the Deer District, and it's going to be scheduled to open um, in the early part of next year. They're calling it the Trade Hotel MKE, a 207-room Marriott Autograph Hotel under construction just north of Pfizer Forum. It's um, it's where the, the Park East Freeway was, 420 West Juno Avenue. I think one of the things that, that this is you're going to see is that this – um, it is going to be an attraction. For example, right now, most of the basketball teams that, that come and, you know, play the Bucks, they, they typically stay at the Fister. Um, I, I think this is a hotel that's going to be designed maybe to cater to, to some of that and things like that. And it's certainly, it, it is an exciting time. You know, this is, I, I think back to where we had the Park East Freeway there. And you, you had all the controversy over the demolishing of, of the Park East Freeway. And then what happened is after they took down the Park East Freeway, it, it was just it was a moonscape down there for just quite a while. But with, with Pfizer Forum going up, um, you, you've had this redevelopment and there's some exciting rebirth going on. And so now you've got the Trade Hotel MKE, which is the Marriott Autograph Hotel, and they're going to have some retail, I think, in it, and they're going to have some restaurants and bars, and I, I suspect it's going to be just another thing that attracts people to want to stay in that area, which, doubling back on something we, we talked about earlier this week, uh, again, just demonstrates some of the insanity that goes on in Milwaukee. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a very, very well-connected real estate developer who conned the city, and I, I say conned in air quotes because there wasn't fraud or anything like that, convinced the city of Milwaukee to lend him $4 million to start construction of, of a high-end hotel that was going to be like on 21st and North, which is the site, if you if you grew up around here like I did, there, there used to be a Sears store. You say, oh, the, the North Avenue Sears store. And it used to be, this is back when, when Sears was a dominant company, and in North Avenue, the Sears store, it was, mul- it was like five stories, and it, it was it was the 
place. If you wanted to shop at Sears, you know, they, they had all they had Sears stores, of course, all over the area. But the North Avenue Sears store was like the, the central hub for Sears stores. Ultimately, it went out of business. And so along comes this developer who wants to develop the, this Icon Hotel. That's what they were calling it. And he convinced the city of Milwaukee to give him $4 million. And most of us at the time who were looking at this said, this this just this doesn't make any sense. The the assessed value of the property, they believed, once it was developed, was only going to be $3.6 million. So why would you loan somebody $4 million for a property that's only going to be worth $3.6 million if it comes off? But it was going to be this sort of high-end luxury hotel on, on 21st and North. And, and everybody who looked at this knew that this was just not going to work out. People hoped it would work. Oh, this is what we need. This will help, you know, develop the central city. But this particular project, putting a high-end hotel at that particular location and thinking that, you know, people were going to stay there, it just, it never made any sense. And, of course, they've been completely and totally unable to get any other individual investors to come forward and put money into it, and it now looks like the city's going to have to foreclose on that, and they'll be stuck with this empty building that they should have never gotten involved in in the first place. So, yeah, some hotels can work, and you'll notice that, for example, this new Marriott Hotel, they're, they're, they're not asking for millions and millions and millions of dollars from the city to develop it. Why? Because it makes good business sense to put it there. Never made any sense at all to develop a high-end hotel at the old Sears store location on North Avenue, and it made even less sense to take millions of dollars of taxpayer money and put it into that. It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. And now, here is Jeff Wagner. It's Pop Culture Corner time, brought to you by Palermo's Pizza, delicious frozen pizzas. They're my favorite, made right here in Wisconsin for over 55 years. Palermo's is Wisconsin's hometown pizza. And courtesy of Palermo's, as we do every week, one caller in the complete and total discretion of my producer, Charlie, will win our Palermo's Pizza prize pack, which includes, try saying that fast three times, includes um, receipts for... Uh, coupons for a couple Palermo's pizzas and it's really cool Palermo's pizza, uh, pizza cutter and a couple other things as well. It's actually kind of a cool little package. Um, one of the callers. Yes, and you have to be a caller if you participate by the text line. Sorry that, that you know, that's not going to work out. Got to be one of the callers and it's in exclusively in his discretion. So, like we say, if you're new to the program, we do this every Friday during this segment of the program and we spend a lot of time during the rest of the week talking about heavy issues, whether it's heavy social issues or heavy political issues or things of the like. And I always like to go kind of gently into the good weekend. So in this segment, we talk about, well, sometimes it's movies, sometimes it's books, a lot of times it's music, sometimes it's sports, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's travel. It's just whatever. Typically, there's something that happens during the course of the week that, that tickles my fancy and I think generates an interesting pop culture corner topic. And hopefully, you know, you will find it interesting as well. Today, today our our topic comes from the world of TV. So, okay, what has generated this? Well, Tony Dow, who played Wally Cleaver, the older brother on the TV show Leave It to Beaver, which ran from 1957 to 1963 on ABC, but that's lived forever and continues to live forever. It's I think it's on MeTV now. But there's, you know, there if, if you have cable, 
my guess is you can go anywhere in, certainly in the United States, maybe anywhere in the world, and, you know, you can turn on the television and you can find a rerun of Leave it to Beaver. It's one of those kind of timeless TV shows that has spoken to generations and generations of, of people, you know, over the years. Like I say, Leave it to Beaver has been off the air since 1963. 1963. And in some respects, I mean, Tony Dow, who played the older brother, you, you've got to you got to appreciate how cool that would have been because he was known his entire life as, hey, you're you're Wally Cleaver. You're the Beeves older brother. But at the same time, you can imagine how frustrating it must have been that no matter what you were going to do in your later life, no matter what you were going to do, what you would accomplish, you were always going to be, hey, you know, remembered as Wally Cleaver, the Beaver's older brother. In any event, Tony Dow passed away this week at the age of 77 after a battle with cancer. And I, I think it's, if you read a lot of the internet tributes and stuff. It, it has people reminiscing about that golden age of television and thinking about, you know, what a, what a timeless show Leave It to Beaver was. I thought we would have a conversation then, therefore, in honor of the late Tony Dow, uh, about television. And um, there are people who will argue that the TV shows they're making today are better than anything that was ever out there. There are some that will argue, no, 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 the only golden age of television was back in in the beginnings and the shows in the 50s and 60s. And then there are people that grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They'll, They'll talk about that as being the golden age of television. In recognition of the passing of Tony Dow, my question to you for Pop Culture Corner is, the greatest TV show of all time, your all time favorite television show, it can be a comedy, it can be a drama, it can be a variety show, I, I don't care, and you can define greatest and favorite however you want to define it. Um, I, I do think, you know, I, I think that to, to find a TV show is the greatest, there, there has to be at least some degree of longevity. I know sometimes people might, oh, there was this great TV show, it was on and it ran 12 episodes, and, and it's never found an audience. So I, I think, you know, longevity probably has a factor, but I don't want to narrow it too much. Pop Culture Corner this week, 855-616-1620, the greatest TV show of all time. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Now back to Take Your Calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. And Wagner's Pop Culture Corner, as we mentioned, presented by Palermo's Pizza. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. In honor of to recognition of the passing of Tony Dow, best known as Wally Cleaver on Beaver Cleaver, uh, we'll leave it to Beaver. We're talking about the greatest television show of all time. Let's start with Karen. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. It's Hi, kind of a shame what happened with Bill Cosby, but um, I'd say I grew up watching the Cosby show. Close second would be the Muppet show. Uh, let, let's talk about the Cosby show for a minute, because I think it's impossible to, to for, for people who might not have been around when that show w- was airing, it's impossible to really talk about how big that show was and, and how great the show was and its portrayal of, like, black families, and he was a doctor and she, the, the wife was accomplished. It was really a different kind of sitcom, and it was a great sitcom, but now because it's Bill Cosby, I, I'm sure they show it somewhere, but they sure don't rerun it very much because he's became so controversial yeah i'd agree with that it was good wholesome television i always had some good life lessons you know in the mix and comedy and it was it was just a great show it um 
it, yeah, I enjoyed it. No, thanks for calling. It, it was, and and it, again, I'm sure I know there's a couple stations that might rerun and stuff, but it, it it's getting nowhere near the exposure that it would have gotten otherwise, except for the fact that you know you look at Bill Cosby and you've got uh, he gets identified in that sort of, sort of fashion. Let's talk to Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. I'm putting a vote in for Mash. Okay, tell me why. Because it is well, it profile the horrors of war with the uh, lighter side of life. Yep. Because you never had a uh, an episode of MASH that didn't make you laugh sooner or later. Yeah. You know, thanks. It's, it's interesting. And, of course, you know, MASH ran for, what, 11 or 12 years. The Korean War was like four years. So, and, and, of course, MASH was both the movie MASH and then the TV show. And, you know, in many cases, I think TV shows – don't come close to doing the movie. I, I think the TV show was better than, than the MASH movie was. But, of course, MASH was, they said it in Korea, but the, the Vietnam War was raging at the time it started. And, of course, they, they were telling, they were making their own political statements. They were using the Korean War to do that. And you created some just incredible characters. It's also impossible to describe how how big and how popular and, and what a hot actor Alan Alda was during this and and that was the era where you know the, the Hawkeye Pierce character you know and that those that was the you know women wanted the, the, the understanding you know, sort of sympathetic the, the the Hawkeye Pierce character that was just and it was an amazing creation and MASH was just a great show with indelible characters let's talk to Brian Brian you're on WTMJ Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Got to go with Seinfeld. Yeah. Always looked forward to uh, Thursday nights. Just couldn't wait for it. Uh, you could make the argument that of the four characters we knew best, not, none of them were supporting characters. They they all had their moments. Uh, but the way the storylines uh, just kind of the way they intersected, uh, mm-hmm. just beautiful writing made for a great 30 minutes. You know, Brian, I, I, and this, this is something that I, I freely admit I was really, really wrong on. I, I, I like Seinfeld. I thought, I thought, though, Seinfeld was kind of a product of its time. I didn't think Seinfeld was going to have legs. I thought it was it was too New York-y and too kind of centered in its, its time. And I was completely wrong because you watch those Seinfeld episodes now for the ninth or tenth time, and they're just as funny in 2022 as they were in 1994 or whatever. It, it really it has had legs, and I didn't see it like that. I, I can't turn it off when I stumble upon it on TV. I, I liked a lot of the classics, but... Uh... Yeah, no, it's great. great. No, it did. No, thanks for calling. Again, I'm. Um, I, I freely admit, I, I thought, I, I just, I didn't think it was going to have the longevity that that it had. I thought again, it was just going to be sort of like a period piece that quickly became dated. And I freely admit, I was uh, wrong. Let's talk to Craig and Horicon. Craig, you're on WTMJ. Hey Jeff, I, it, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I'm going to go with Sanford and Son. You know, I'm, MASH is so great because it's got drama, it's got comedy. But Sanford and Son introduced me to the black community. Red Fox, yep. what a great comedian, actor, and, you know, and, and yeah. we kind of dealt with, you know, I, for me, I grew up in an all-white community. It was just groundbreaking and hilarious and Oh, yeah. And I tell you what, I turned into a drug collector after watching that show. <laughs> after Fred Sanford, right, and his son Lamont. Um, you know, it, it's funny. If you, 
and, and Red Fox passed away a, a long time ago. But it, and he of course played Fred Sanford on in, on the Sanford Son show. If you ever get a chance to go back and, and do YouTube searches and find some of the comedy routines, because before he was Fred Sanford, um, Red Fox was a very very successful stand up comic who worked. At, he, the, the shows were incredibly funny, but really really dirty. Capital D I R T Y. And you can go back and you can see some of these shows on. Like if you watch him on YouTube, like his nightclub act and stuff, and you go, huh, huh, that's kind of interesting. A number of people are mentioning All in the Family, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, Norman Lear, who developed All in the Family and Sanford and Son and Maud and a number of the others, um, he turned 100 this this week, I think it was. Big story in the New York Times. He made it to 100. Let's talk to Mark. Mark, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What's your What's the best TV show of all time? Okay, real old oldie here, uh, The Fugitive, starring David Jansen. Right, right. Nineteen sixty three through nineteen sixty seven. His search the thing for I liked about the fugitive. Yep. Uh, yeah, search for the one hour man. The thing I loved about the fugitive is it spanned four years of him on the run uh, from Lieutenant Philip Gerard. Right. And it did have an ending to it on August 29th, 1967, the day the running stopped. Right. And uh, that. So it's a show that actually had a, a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. It actually ended. Right. And it ended, um, I think, that, that last episode that for the longest time, that was the most heavily watched television show in the history of television because people wanted to see how it ended. Mark, you are the winner of our Palermo's prize package for this week. Thanks for playing. I, partic- I appreciate it. Okay, well, woohoo! <laughs> there you, you go, absolutely. Uh, 855-616-1620. Jeff, downtown. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, well, to me, it's undisputed, and the TV show is Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely uh, the highest-ranked, critically acclaimed television show in history. It has the greatest story arc, the best character development, the most interesting um, writing, and there's actually some fascinating trivia about Breaking Bad. One is that the first season was only seven episodes because there was a Hollywood writer's strike. Mm-hmm. And when AMC ran with that show, they weren't quite sure that they were going to continue with a second season because the TV show didn't really grab an audience yet. It was on Sunday nights. And the first episode of Breaking Bad ever, the premiere episode, the pilot, aired on the exact same night as Brett Favre's last game as a Green Bay Packer in the NFC Championship game against the Giants. And everyone was watching the football game, and no one was watching Breaking Bad. And it's such a great show. Do you like watching Better Call Saul? Do you like that? Yes, I've watched. Um, I've watched actually. So I watched Breaking Bad from literally the very beginning. So I saw the first episode, and I was like, I was a diehard fan from the first episode. So I didn't like catch it later on. I watched all of it, and the same thing with Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul is a little too slow for me. The first three seasons, but right. these last two have been excellent, and I'm I'm totally addicted to the show. But the first three uh, years were a little slow, and you could kind of like breeze through them. Yeah, thanks to call I, again. I think they've got what I think three episodes left in Better Call Saul. I, I I enjoy them both, and I'm certainly not going to argue. Um, okay, let me just get to some text lines because we've just they exploded, and I've been bad with this. Leave It to Beaver is my all time favorite. The 
Fugitive is my second all-time favorite. Let's see. All in the family, all in the family, all in the family. Uh, Big Bang Theory. A lot of people, let's see, Frasier and Seinfeld. Well, you know, making my living as a talk radio host, you got to kind of love Frasier. And like I say, Seinfeld was great. Um, Jeff, Leave it to Beaver when I was a kid. MASH and All in the Family when I was older. Uh, Carol Burnett as far as variety shows. Yeah, that one's one that ages well. Jeff, Hill Street Blues was absolutely cutting-edge TV in its day. Yes, I, without, you know, you don't get NYPD Blue without Hill Street Blues. I think you can make a strong argument that you don't get a lot of Shows. Maybe even you don't get Breaking Bad without Hill Street Blues. I'm not sure how well that one holds up over time, but I, cause I, I went back and I, I watched the first several seasons of that a few years ago. Jeff, and this is this could be from my dear friend Joe. Um, best TV show of all time is Andy Griffith. My buddy Joe and um, his wife Janet, they, they still watch a couple hours of Andy Griffith a day. They just absolutely love it. Jeff, for me, it's got to be Seinfeld. My dad rarely watched any TV, but for some reason he got hooked on Seinfeld. It was so much fun laughing and talking about the episode with him the next day. A lot of people, and again, Seinfeld has aged really well. Jeff, I'd have to say it was the Andy Griffith show. Let's see, Seinfeld. There is kind of a consensus here that's developing. Jeff, for me, I love Rod uh, Serling and the Twilight Zone, MASH, the Wild Wild West with James West. Uh, Jeff, for me, it would be The Sopranos. Well, The Sopranos was great TV as well. Jeff, for me, it was Little House on the Prairie. Um, no question about it. Jeff, I go with MASH. It was absolutely outstanding. To me, Jeff, I loved Last Man Standing. I thought that was tremendous. Hawaii Five-0. Some people are talking about Hawaii Five-0, the original one that goes back there. All these great TV shows, and, and that's the great thing. A lot of this stuff, they are just absolutely timeless, and we can enjoy them over and over again. And there's a lot of episodes of Leave it to Beaver that, you know, you, if you've got grandkids, you sit down, you show them to your grandkids, and they will enjoy them maybe as much as you did when you were watching them first time around. All right, that is it for Pop Culture Corner. 